Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Lauren Kelly Chu is the head of clinical product at Levels, which is one of my favorite metabolic health startups. Lauren graduated from medical school at UPenn, where she was a Gamble Scholar, and she's passionate about building products and businesses that solve system-level problems and make good health accessible to everyone. Amen. Lauren, welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Excited to have you. Uh, We're going to attempt to cover a lot of ground on blood sugar today, but I wanted to start off with something on the Levels blog that I found to be quite interesting on the connection between blood sugar and our mental health and mood. So let's start there with some of the findings, specifically what you found with regards to anxiety. So this is really interesting. And I think I'm so glad that there's more conversation about the links between mood and metabolic health, because it just reflects how interconnected every system in our bodies are. Um, And I think it's been known for quite a while that there is a link between depression and diabetes. For example, diabetics are twice as likely to have uh, to have depression. So yeah, so it's 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 a very significant increase. And there have been a lot of proposed explanations for why this is. And it all revolves around the impact of high insulin and insulin resistance on the brain. So first of all, as we know, when you have high levels of insulin, you're just in an overall state of inflammation. And this lowers serotonin levels. And serotonin is one of the major modulators of mood. So this, of course, has, has an impact. But if we dive even deeper, what we see is that there is a direct impact of insulin resistance on the stress response systems in the brain and in the body. And as you can imagine, this would directly link to depression and anxiety as well. And even more than that, we see that insulin resistance plays a role in dysregulating the emotional regulation centers of the brain and also the pathways related to reward and learning. So there's so many things going on when you have these high levels of insulin that change the way that your brain would otherwise function. There was a really good example of this in a pretty amazing study that enrolled 600 participants that did not have depression or anxiety, and it followed them for nine years. And what it found is that people who started that time period with a marker of insulin resistance were two times, almost two times more likely to develop depression over that time period. And this was a major step forward in our understanding because, like I said, there was quite a bit of demonstration that depression and diabetes are linked. But this was demonstrating that depression and insulin resistance are linked. And insulin resistance happens much, much earlier than diabetes. Insulin resistance is a precursor to prediabetes, which is a precursor to diabetes. Um, And we know that in the US, about 9 out of 10 Americans have some sign of metabolic dysfunction, which is to say almost all of us are experiencing insulin resistance to some extent. And so what this study really demonstrated is that in all likelihood, in the absence of prediabetes, in the absence of diabetes, our levels of metabolic dysregulation that almost all of us are experiencing are most likely impacting our mood, most likely in the form of depression and anxiety, and probably other things as well. So it's really, really just fascinating and powerful research. If someone who has anxiety you know, walks into a, a doctor's office or, you know, whether there's a functional medicine doctor or there's a psychiatrist or a general practitioner, uh, you know, when I hear a study like that, one would think that that practitioner would say, okay, you have anxiety, let's look 
at your your fasting insulin like let, let's see what's going on here uh and maybe some other tests but it seems to me is it safe to assume that th this is kind of like a huge deal like if if <laughs> insulin resistance is a precursor to anxiety and depression would it be safe to assume that we could potentially treat anxiety and depression with getting someone to get their insulin under control, especially their, their, their glucose, their spikes under control? My intuition is yes, but I would say that the research on this is evolving. And there's kind of sequential steps as you go from saying, okay, we're observing an association to now, okay, now we're observing a cause. So we believe that actually insulin resistance causes these things to then, we now believe that if we alter insulin resistance, if we reverse that, that we can reverse the disease. Each of these or the condition, each of these things is kind of escalating levels of um, evidence required and evidence generation. And I would say the research is still very early, but I think there's a lot of signs pointing to the answer being yes. In all likelihood, if we improve insulin resistance, we will improve mood. How, I'm just curious, like how out of whack are, are those levels when we talk about insulin resistance? And is it just like fasting glucose? Like what, what are you looking at in terms of the blood work? So that's interesting because there's the question of what is typically looked at in a doctor's office and then what is looked at in the various forms of research that are being done. So this particular study primarily looked at the triglyceride to HDL ratio, which is a metric that reflects uh, insulin resistance and metabolic health. It also looked at waist circumference and fasting glucose, and it measured those as secondary metrics. So those are the ones that they used. And the increases that they used in terms of determining whether or not you had a marker of insulin resistance were clinically significant, but not so high that you would say they're extraordinarily high. Like these were levels that you are likely to find in many people just living their normal lives. Like I said, and, and this kind of links back to how do we know we have insulin resistance at all? In general, almost all of us have it and we don't know it. And that's because the tests that are used in typical doctor's offices don't really very effectively measure or screen for insulin resistance. For example, fasting glucose is a good example. You can have a normal, a quote, normal fasting glucose, but your body has to produce tons and tons of insulin to keep your blood sugar at that level. So for example, the cutoff for fasting glucose um, in today's standards is 99. So let's say that you have a fasting glucose of 90, and so do I. We're both considered in the normal range. But let's say that for you to keep your glucose at 90, you only have to secrete a small amount of insulin. But for me to keep my glucose at 90, I'm secreting five times as much insulin as you are. If we both go to the doctor's office and get our blood test done, and all they do is a fasting glucose, they're going to think we're equivalently healthy from a metabolic standpoint, when in fact, I am much farther down the pathway of high insulin and insulin resistance than you are. So I think there's so much additional testing and screening and kind of understanding from the medical community that needs to occur here for us to understand even when we do or do not have evidence of insulin resistance and then how we might act to reverse that. So let's talk about that. If most people aren't aware, how can they become more aware? What does that look like practically? I think there's two main strategies. So the first one is you really try to tune into your body. I think what so many of us have accepted as normal parts of life, for example, eating lunch and then crashing, these are actually not physiologically normal in the sense that they don't have to be your normal if you have metabolic health. There's no reason why you have to have interrupted sleep as a normal part of your day, why 
being hangry or having mood swings in relation to when you're eating um, has to be a thing. Why having specific food cravings or crashes has to be a thing. And so I think as we become more cognizant of really tuning into our bodies and say, okay, as I experience my day, how do I actually feel? And does this actually feel the way that I want to if I'm in my full embodiment of health and experience? Or does this feel like it's actually off? I actually think that that's a starting point that almost anyone can use. And if we're really honest, if we really start to tune in, almost everyone realizes there's things happening that don't really seem like they reflect full health. The other thing is essentially getting different blood tests that are than are conventionally done. Um, I think there's a lot of progress needed here because, of course, you can't, in general, most people don't walk into their primary care physician and just order tests for themselves, right? It's um, like the example you gave of actually going to your doctor and saying you're having anxiety and you believe it's linked to insulin resistance and then them ordering a fasting insulin. That would be a very progressive doctor. I think most doctors would probably say, oh, that's interesting. Okay, let's go on to other things, right? Like they just, they're not trained. And of course, many of my colleagues are amazing physicians. So this is not a critique of physicians. It's just simply the way medicine is practiced. Um, so I think patients advocating for themselves, knowing which blood tests will reflect their level of insulin resistance, and then working with physicians to change their behavior in terms of thinking about those things. Um, so some good tests that people can ask for are fasting insulin, triglycerides, HDL. So you can look at your triglyceride to HDL ratio. Of course, the, the gold standard is an oral glucose tolerance test, which any woman who has been pregnant has probably experienced, um, and you drink a super sugary drink and you measure your, your glucose response, and you can actually also measure your insulin response. And then, of course, wearing a continuous glucose monitor will also give you a major window into your health. So there's kind of escalating levels of tuning into your body and then going all the way towards a continuous glucose monitor. But I think whatever tool people have accessible to them, they can start to use to get better understanding. The, the continuous glucose monitor, you know, I, I've tried levels. I thought it was very insightful. And to me, as I think about CGMs and the value, it's really understanding your body and how you respond to specific foods. And for me, it led to some actionable insights. And it's not about you know not having the sourdough bread or that amazing donut, because it's gonna happen. And I think spikes are gonna happen, but it's being aware of what spikes and what doesn't you know my take and i'm curious your take spikes are going to happen like if you if you try to live life without spiking i think you're going to be pretty hangry uh but also with that said i think it's acknowledgement of spikes are going to happen and that's okay but you also learn how to minimize spikes where you know maybe you're having a piece of chocolate and that's an amazing piece of chocolate but you know if you throw a little peanut butter that was like my big takeaway which i just love it's like peanut butter for the win for me everything like having chocolate peanut butter whatever i'm having peanut butter get that protein and fat in there it would minimize the spike so like there, there are actionable insights with regards to what i can potentially do to mitigate a response and you've, you've got some great data around what people have done so so let's go there because i think everyone's listening saying all right you know i'm gonna have uh, dessert's gonna happen alcohol is gonna happen things are gonna happen that they're 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 gonna spike my glucose but and if i can minim minimize it i will so can you share some of those insights about what works in terms of minimizing spikes absolutely and i think one thing that's really interesting and i'd be curious what your experience was with spikes is that 
on the one hand, spikes will happen. I think that's true for almost everyone. On the other hand, the more that you learn how it feels when you spike, especially really big spikes, the more I think people start to feel like they don't like that feeling actually. And so you have this counterbalance of something tasting really good when it goes in the mouth and then having this sensation that may not be actually the way you like to feel. And I think of course it varies on what's what, but for me, that was one of the biggest things I noticed is I love, I love desserts. I mean, I, I love chocolate. I love all of that stuff. But what I realized is that the way I felt in the hours after I ate those things, it really took away actually from my overall experience of that day. And over time, I actually started just avoiding more and more of those spikes, not because I was prohibiting myself from eating those foods, but simply because I didn't want the metabolic hangover, which is how it felt to me. And what I did is, and I, I, this is kind of like your peanut butter hack, I started to find other ways to find ways to enjoy indulgences that were not spiking me. Um, so in terms of strategies, there are so many. I'll just go through some of the simple ones that many people may have heard. Um, one of them is pairing your food and specifically pairing your carbs. So when you eat carbs alone, your body absorbs those very quickly and they turn into sugar very quickly and you'll get a big spike. The classic example is you go to a restaurant on an empty stomach and you go straight for the bread basket. When you do that, the spike that you experience is about as large as it can be from that carb load. If instead you pair that bread with fat and protein, so for example, olive oil, and maybe you put some avocado on there or whatever else is available, that will slow down the spike dramatically. And even better is if you eat that fat and protein and ideally fiber, so for example, salad, first, you let your body start to digest that, and then you have those carbs at the end of the meal. So food pairing and food ordering are really, really powerful and easy to do. You don't even have to deprive yourself of what you're going to eat. You just postpone it by a few minutes or you add something to it. So those are two easy strategies. Um, and then walking or moving a little bit after you eat is incredibly powerful. I mean, lots of research and it's continuing to emerge has shown that even minimal movement, even just standing, even walking two minutes, all of these will lower blood sugar because your muscles are essentially glucose sinks. When you use your muscles, it just sucks glucose right out of the blood and uh, automatically lowers the impact of that spike. So those are some of the things. And then Levels has done some interesting real world research um, with our members that I can share with you as well. Yeah, please, please share one thing I'll share personally. So when I would just, I, I, I would see how high I could spike. So I, I would, you know, this was when we were living in New York at the time, I, you know, I don't really eat impossible burgers, but I'm like, all right, I'm going to get an impossible burger and French fries and we're going to get a donut and I get like a frozen margarita. And let's see how high this thing can go. Uh, I would get it pretty high, but I was, I was walked. And so I would walk right after, even though I had the classic double spike, even though the spike was massive and then it would come down, I felt fine. And I think part of it, like I, I've never had an issue with feeling even when I've had, even when I'm not wearing a CGM of, of knowing I'm having something that's totally spiking myself, I always move. So I never really feel it. Uh, but, you know, in, in terms of movement, I want to stay on this for, for a moment. Is it about how much, like, what have you seen with regards, like, have you found any type of specific movement whether it's walking versus running versus, you know, lifting weights or, or anything where someone's been able to completely like mitigate the response. 
whether or not you can completely mitigate it in the moment, I think has to do with how large that carb load is. If there are certain carb loads that are so large that almost no matter what you do, you will not avoid that spike. It's just the body gets so overwhelmed by the load, there's nothing it can do. However, for less extreme spikes, yes. I mean, there are people I know who will actually, if they're going to have some ice cream, for example, they will eat their ice cream while walking. And they have found that actually moving while they're consuming that ice cream really, really mitigates their spike. They may still get a little bit, but they're basically burning that glucose right when they're eating it. Now, that might not be enjoyable to some people. That might ruin the whole point of enjoying the ice cream. But I know that there are, there are, for example, some Levels team members who have tried things like that. Exercise is really interesting because there's the impact on your blood sugar in the moment. And then there's also just the long-term impact on your metabolic health that will help you when you eat things in the future. So weightlifting is really example is a really good example. Weightlifting actually increases muscle mass, of course, and muscles really use blood sugar. So when you invest in weightlifting and building your lean muscle mass, you're investing in the future of your metabolic health because the next time that you have a load, you'll be much better able to process it. Of course, over time, being consistent over time. Um, in terms of intensity of exercise, there's also some interesting things happening there. So for example, we've seen that when people exercise very intensely, your body actually will increase your blood sugar. It's releasing blood sugar into the blood so that the body has enough energy available to do that really intense exercise. So for example, when I go for a really hard run, I actually see my blood sugar spike during that run. And that is a typical physiologic response. However, if you do low intensity exercise, like walking or very slow running, and I think it has to be, we're actually experimenting with this on our team right now. How slow do you have to run to not see that spike? But if you do very low intensity exercise, your blood sugar will decrease as you move because you're taking sugar out of the blood, using it for the muscles, and your body doesn't feel like it needs to increase that blood sugar supply more. So there's a lot of modulation, but I think overall, just move. You know, if everyone just moved more than they're moving now, except for the extreme ultramarathoners who are probably at the extreme of the range of and beyond what is healthy exercise, I don't even think it's, I think some of this conversation about that's out there about like how to optimize it, in my mind, it's just, if everyone just did something, we would dramatically improve our collective health. So I hear you on movement. Does standing versus sitting matter? In my opinion, it does. I think there hasn't been a ton of research on this, but we know that when you stand, you engage so much skeletal muscle. Even if you just think about the way that your core has to be engaged in order to stand up straight, the way that you're glutes are engaged, your hamstrings or quads. Now, of course, if you're standing in a really slumped way, you're probably engaging less muscle. But if you're really standing, for example, washing the dishes after dinner, your muscles are much more activated than if you're sitting or laying down. And I don't think there's any question that physiologically that will improve your blood sugar. Interesting. All right. So let's go back. What, what, else, to the, what else have you found in terms of the data set that's interesting? So we're in this really interesting situation where we can do real world experiments, which is to say not the kind of sterile clinical trials that are so typical in science, but rather looking at what happens to real people living their real lives as they make choices about their food. And many of these things we've tested first on ourselves, where we've said, well, what would happen? Like I said, we're doing something with exercise. Well, what would happen if I ran so slowly I'm practically walking, right? So we've done a series of these experiments with food, um, and we've actually invited our members to participate if they want to. So one of the ones that we've done is on vinegar. There's 
been some evidence that consuming vinegar before a meal reduces the glucose spike due to effects on glucose processing that vinegar has. So we asked our members to participate in a challenge, again, completely optional, in which they had one ounce of vinegar before eating a meal with carbs, and then at a different time had that same meal without the vinegar. We had about 100 people participate in this, and what we saw was that on average, the glucose spike for people drinking the vinegar was about seven points less. And interestingly, there were a few people who decided to do this experiment with pizza, and the impact of vinegar for them was even larger. Now, these might not sound like big- Okay, hold up, hold up, hold the press. So let's talk about vinegar and pizza because I love great pizza. I don't have it that often, but I love great pizza. So let's talk about vinegar and pizza. What, what was the impact? So I believe that for the people who had pizza, the impact was 14 points instead of seven, so double. But this is a good pause point to say, this is not completely clean, like I said, clinical trial data. This is more about getting, right? Like this is getting a signal and some pattern recognition of what might be happening. Um, so I don't think we're at a point where we can say vinegar before pizza is, is, you know, exactly this or that. But I think it does suggest that vinegar might be a really interesting tool. And what the pizza says to me, without knowing exactly what the other people had chosen as their high carb meals, what the pizza says to me is that when you do a very high carb, very difficult from a metabolic perspective meal to digest, that the vinegar, the impact of the vinegar can be more pronounced because you actually have more damage to compensate for, so to speak. That would be my guess uh, about what happened, but it may be something else. It may be something else, who knows? But it's, um, it's interesting because you even think about if you're going to have a pizza and you follow having a salad first, which is a great idea for the fiber, and hopefully you put some protein and fat in there. And let's say you use some vinegar in the dressing. What an easy way to potentially help your body. And in terms of vinegar, is it just a tablespoon, teaspoon? It was one ounce in this particular thing. Okay. So, so, so vinegar, I think everyone's writing down vinegar one ounce right now. Uh, you know, you mentioned dairy earlier, ice cream. So let's pivot to alternative milks because they are all not created equal. They are definitely not. And it's interesting because I recently started an Instagram channel where I essentially go into grocery stores and look for unexpected culprits of, of high blood sugar. And the milks, of course, the, the plant-based milks are a big source of those. Um, and specifically oat milk. I think a lot of people drink oat milk because they actually think it's healthy for them. But oats are really interesting. They've really stuck out in our data set from the very beginning as something that almost everyone is sensitive to. So when you have unpaired oats, like people just eating oatmeal straight, for example, they get very large glucose spikes. For example, 60 to 120 point glucose spikes that stay elevated for two plus hours. So oatmeal for most people is very, very difficult from a blood sugar perspective. So it's not surprising that oat milk is probably not the wisest choice from a blood sugar perspective, but we decided that we should do a little experiment. Again, just real world data, see what happens. And we asked our members to prepare their coffee in the morning with a serving of oat milk, whatever they normally do. And then on another day to do the same thing with an unsweetened nut milk, for example, just a simple unsweetened almond milk and see what happened. In the approximately 50 people who did this, we found that they had a 20 point jump on average for the oat milk and no jump at all for the unsweetened plant-based milk. So by adding oat milk to their coffee, they were having a relatively significant spike in blood sugar that could be completely avoided by using a different plant-based milk. 
Wow. Well, oatly specifically is like the worst oat milk because they throw rapeseed in there, which is canola oil. It's terrible. Um, so with that said, how would you rank your alternative milks? Obviously, if you take out unsweetened, obviously across the board. So does it sound like almond is one? How about, you know, I've seen and every once in a while I'll have almond milk, I'll have cashew milk, I'll have walnut milk I found, I'll have hazelnut milk. Uh, obviously, I look for just pure, the actual nut itself and, and filtered water and, and minimize the, the ingredients. But how, how do you rank your alternative milks across the board? I think you basically just described my philosophy. It, I look for milks that are unsweetened and have as few ingredients as possible. So we're trying to avoid fillers. We're trying to avoid really anything other than that nut or plant-based, whatever it is, and water essentially is the way that... So for example, there's almond milks that are literally just two ingredients, the almonds and the milk or the almonds, the milk, and a little bit of vanilla. And I think that applies to all of the nut milks that you described. I would just look for getting them as clean as possible. Um, I think in general, we suggest at levels that people avoid rice milk simply because like the oat milk, it's also likely to spike blood sugar and also tends to be sweetened. Um, outside of that, I don't really, I don't drink a lot of the other milks, um, I think, but I would be looking for the same thing. One thing that's interesting that I think sometimes people don't realize is that many of these plant milks, even the very clean ones, they don't really have much protein. So if you are thinking of it as milk, you need to get your protein from another source because you really will not get that there. Yeah, agreed. I, I love personally milk. Uh, I have their almond milk all the time, but then I'll throw in our grass-fed collagen and then I'll throw in some almond butter or whatever nut butter. I, I try to always switch it up and then I'll throw in an avocado and you know make sure I get my, my protein and fat. So you mentioned your oats and oatmeal, which leads me to breakfast. Everyone is different, obviously. But what are the breakfasts that probably are going to be good for like 80% of everyone out there? What, what have you found in the data set? I would say the number one thing is avoiding most of the traditional popular breakfast foods. So breakfast tends, breakfast tends to be a very high carb, very sweet meal. If you think about going to brunch, almost everything on the menu is going to spike your blood sugar. The pancakes, the French toast, waffles donuts, bagels, toast even, right? Like all of this stuff. And then at home, cereal, oatmeal, like we talked about. So the real thing is just moving away from those high carb, high sugar foods towards very low carb, low sugar foods. So for example, eggs are great. Eggs, I think are the number one suggestion that everyone at levels probably gives to people who are not vegan um, to have for breakfast. They're just packed with nutrition. They have no blood sugar um, impact. Avocado, if you're really into toast, there's some actually pretty good non-processed low-carb breads out there now. For example, Base Culture has a keto bread that is really tasty if you toast it. Um, and you, for me at least, maybe I've just been eating this way for so long now, I don't really feel like I'm deprived of normal bread when I eat that. Um, of course, if you can do a breakfast with vegetables, non-starchy vegetables, that's beneficial chia seed pudding, if you have those around. Of course, not everyone has access to specialty grocery stores, um, coconut yogurts that are unsweetened. But I think really something that anyone with almost any level of resourcing can do is eggs. And eggs, you can even get at a restaurant. So it's my go-to. So I have a couple of follow-ups. So you mentioned coconut yogurt. What about 
you know, great grass-fed dairy yogurt, but it's unsweetened. There's quite a bit of debate on this. And the reason is because it looks like dairy actually creates a higher insulin response than you would think given the carb load. So dairy has the naturally occurring sugar lactose. So even unsweetened dairy will have some natural sugar in it. Um, but for some reason, the dairy itself triggers, the way it's processed in the body triggers our bodies to release more insulin than you would think it would given that amount of natural sugar. Now, so that has been a signal to some researchers to say, or scientists or advocates to say, it, maybe it's best to avoid dairy because it creates this extra insulin response. On the flip side, there have been many studies showing that people who eat dairy in general have better signs of metabolic health, for example, weight management and other things. And so there's these two competing stories happening where it's like on the one hand, you're getting an exaggerated insulin response. On the other hand, it looks like it's healthy. So where I fall on this is I think I follow what my grandmother said, which is all things in moderation. And um, the most important thing I think is what you said, which is unsweetened. And to the extent you can, you try to make it as clean as possible in terms of organic, grass-fed if possible. Um, and and I do think in general, um, I recently did a deep dive into the yogurt aisle. And one thing that seems to be a theme is the Greek yogurts, of course, because they're more dense, you tend to get a much higher protein um, load for less natural sugar. So to some extent, I think that might be a, a more nutrient-dense way to eat it than typical yogurt, but it's not a huge difference. And you mentioned bread and specifically called out base culture. I'm curious, were there other brands or types of breads that stood out? What came to mind for me was the, you know, the famous food for life, Ezekiel breads that have, that have been around forever. How did, how did they do? Those were actually relatively high in carb. And I think for me, I'm very sensitive to carbs. So those breads, I just, I knew from the amount of carbs they had in them that they wouldn't work for me. There is some nuance to the type of carb and grain that is there. For example, if it's sprouted grains, that can be a little bit different than other forms and the level of processing. So I, I think it really comes down to personalization, but at least of those Ezekiel breads that I've seen, I wouldn't consider them low carb and I would suspect that they would probably spike most people. And so is it sprouted grains? Like if someone's out there looking to buy a bread, they, they love bread and they, they want it, they, they want some bread. Is it, is it sourdough? Is it sprouted? What, what should they look for in a bread? In general, my view on bread is that almost all of them are high enough in carbs that they will constitute a meaningful glucose load. I do know some people say that, for example, certain breads have higher levels of resistant starch, which is to say starch that is not directly converted into blood sugar. I know that many people have said that sourdough is lower on the glycemic index because of the way it's processed. In general, I think bread is bread. Of course, less processed, I think, is more nutritionally dense. So if you're going to eat it, you go for nutrition. But one of the most powerful things you can do with bread is pairing. So if you put peanut butter, other things on the bread, you will, you will dampen that blood sugar response quite a bit. And actually, when you compare it to something like a bagel, a slice of toast is actually a much smaller, in general, depending on the bread, is a much smaller glucose load than eating a bagel. So... I don't really demonize a slice of bread if that's really important to someone. And I would say they should do what they enjoy the most because I think getting into a mindset that if you get the sprouted sourdough bread, it's therefore, you know, like a metabolically healthy choice. I think it's actually better just to say, I enjoy this piece of bread. This is the one that tastes best to me and is most nutrient dense. And 
I will eat it in moderation or minimize it. <laughs> well said. So you mentioned resistant starches. Let's talk about the findings there. Yeah, this is really interesting. So resistant starch, like I said, is a starch that can't be broken down by the digestive system. So you can think of it as fiber or what some people call roughage, I think. Um, and what's interesting is that when you take some starches like potatoes and you cook them and then you cool them, the cooling process actually increases the amount of resistant starch in that potato. So what we thought would be an interesting challenging for our members is to ask them to cook their favorite starch and to eat one serving hot and fresh, and then to save one serving, cool it down, put it in the refrigerator, and eat it later. And in both cases, they were asked to eat the starch without any additives other than salt and pepper. So no oil, no protein, just the straight starch. And what we learned is that on average, the glucose spike for the cooled refrigerated portion was 11 points lower than the hot and fresh portion. Um, now, it's interesting to point out that they both still caused an increase in glucose. So the hot, fresh portion on average created an increase of 42 points and the cold was 31 points. But that's actually a meaningful difference. And, and again, not statistically significant. These are not formal studies, but just showing a trend that something as simple as cooling your food down before you eat it can make a difference. Well, it, it reminds me of a show we did the other day with Amy Sapala where she talked about preparation specifically, she shared that boiling a sweet potato had a much lower glucose response than baking a sweet potato. So wh what are some other examples, I thought it was so fascinating, what are some other examples of where preparation really makes a difference? We haven't explored this super fully. I will say that on that starch experiment that we did, we noticed that the effect was even more pronounced for rice than for other starches. So that was pretty interesting and surprising. Um, and I, I love rice. I don't eat it very much anymore, but I think there's so many cultures where rice is a staple that that's a pretty interesting finding. Outside of that, I think what we've seen is mostly what you'd expect. So for example, whole fruit is going to be better metabolically than juice. Whole fruit is going to be better metabolically than dried fruit simply because of quantity or primarily because of quantity and then food pairing. Um, but this is an area that I expect we'll explore more and more as we essentially experiment with different ways to prepare food and see what happens. So are there, you know, for me, it was so interesting and I, and I love this data point. I love coffee. Coffee did nothing to me, uh, which even, even lowered my glucose sometimes. So I was like, okay, coffee, coffee for, for a win. But I understand that's not always the case with some people. And I'm, I'm sure that there are certain foods, you know, cake, if you have cake, I don't care who you are, I'm going to guess there's a spike. What are, you know, as you're looking at data, what were some of the surprising foods where some people had spikes and some people didn't? I think some of, there are some of the obvious ones. What, what are some of the surprising ones? This is really interesting because I think it has a lot to do with microbiome. So how does your body process the food you're eating versus my body? Or how does my body process it even today compared to a month from now? One of the ones that has come out that's especially interesting, and I know Casey has talked about this, is beans. Some people get very little response from beans and others get a major spike from beans. And it's hard to understand why that is, right? Like if you're eating the exact same carb load, why would that be happening? So we know it must be something about the way that it's being processed. Um, and, and beans actually have quite a bit of resistant starch in them as well. So I think beans are a good example. 
in general, I would say there's just much more personalization than you would think when it comes to all of these foods. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like there are people who can't eat any sweet potato and there are people who eat a lot of sweet potato and do fine. Same with banana. I've had many friends who have done levels and like I said, I'm very sensitive. So I've been kind of jealous of their responses to things, but they will get away with eating things that I can't get away with at all. And the only explanation is our bodies are different. On that note, are there people out there that you've encountered who can just eat anything? Like they can have the cake, no big deal. They can have a bagel, no big deal, no response. Are there are there unicorns, if you will, that exist with regards to their ability to, to weather any sort of glucose storm? I'm sure that there are genetic differences, but I also think that so much of this is lifestyle differences. So you can craft yourself into a unicorn or as close to your version of a unicorn as you can be, right? So for example, if you're doing a lot of weightlifting, you have a lot of lean muscle mass, you're doing consistent exercise throughout the day. Maybe you're even moving almost all day. Like let's say you have a job where you're constantly moving. You are getting consistently high quality sleep. Your stress levels are low. So you're not triggering a fight or flight response during the day. You are in an environment that is not full of toxins, right? Like you actually, I think you can create a scenario where it would seem like you're a unicorn, but really what you've done is just made your body extremely resilient. So you mentioned moving all day. I'm assuming it's better to have a spike earlier in the day than it is to have a spike later in the day. The answer is yes. And it's very, according to the research that we have so far, it's really interesting because actually glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity cycle throughout the day. So the same food that you eat in the morning versus the night will very well have a different glucose response. And what research has shown is that for almost everyone who's non-diabetic, it looks like we have our best blood sugar control in the mid-morning, say around 10 a.m. And then it just goes downhill from there, essentially. And so you can keep that in mind as you're going through your day and of course, as it gets late at night, you're starting to secrete melatonin as you get tired. And melatonin actually suppresses insulin. So if you eat high glucose foods at night, you're actually doing that in a situation where you don't have as much insulin available to even deal with that blood sugar. So it's very difficult for the body. And we know that sleep quality is heavily impacted by your blood sugar um, when you go to sleep and then at night. So most experts, I think, recommend not eating in the hours before you go to bed. Um, and one thing I think is really interesting about this that I try to remember when I'm trying to follow this is that we talk a lot about circadian rhythm. And of course, this is all linked to circadian rhythm. But really, in addition to the master clock that we have in our brains, every cell in our body actually has its own clock. And so when you eat, you're giving a signal to the organs involved in digestion that it's a certain time of day and the clocks in those cells are thinking, oh, it's an eating time. But your master clock thinks it's a time when you shouldn't be eating. And so you create a misalignment between these more peripheral clocks and the master clock. And that in and of itself leads to a lot of dysregulation. So you mentioned 10 a.m. as kind of the time where we have the most flexibility, if you will. So in my mind, I'm thinking we have it all wrong. We should not have dessert after dinner. We should have dessert after breakfast at 10 a.m. This is, you make the case for donuts. Well, I hope I'm making the case for no donuts. <laughs> for all. But I, do, I do think there's something to be said for that, which is that when you eat and you're more likely to move after that, and your body is in a state where it's more sensitive to insulin, it's more able to deal with that load, the damage to your body, the levels of inflammation it creates 
will be lower, or maybe better put, will be more easier to recover from, I think would be the way to put it. On the flip side, I would say from the experience of being as fully alive as possible, when you start your day with a big blood sugar spike, it sets up your body for much more dysregulation than when you start with stability. So in an ideal world, we wouldn't be eating the donut at all. But I agree with you. If we are going to eat that donut, a very conscious way to do it is after a really high, high protein, high fat, high fiber breakfast, eat it and walk. <laughs> Let me further clarify. I, I love donuts, but I am not a fan of eating a donut every day. With that said, I believe in having a great donut on the weekend. So this maybe makes the case for a beautiful big brunch with a fantastic donut. I think so. And I would actually say one thing that's interesting about donuts is Krispy Kreme donuts, for example, have about, I believe it's 22 grams of carbs and 10 grams of sugar. So actually, that is really? a much- That feels, yeah. I haven't had a Krispy Kreme donut in ages, uh, but that seems low. It seems low. But then when you think about a Krispy Kreme, they're very light and fluffy. And I think that's why they're not particularly dense. And so, and they're not particularly large. The reason I know this is because I often use Krispy Kremes as a benchmark when I look at other products. And I'm saying to myself, how does this yogurt, for example, stack up to a Krispy Kreme? And what you find is that so many foods that we think of as healthy, for example, breakfast cereals or yogurts, actually have much more sugar and carbs than a Krispy Kreme. Now, one could argue that the nutrient density is different, right? Not, it's not all about just the nutrition label. But, but I do think there's some truth to this idea that if there's something you really enjoy and you have it in a reasonable portion size occasionally, but it brings you a lot of enjoyment and it kind of opens you up to eat in a really healthy way the rest of the time, I actually, I, I, think, that's, I think that's reasonable. Maybe it's not optimal, but I think it's reasonable. I, I completely agree. I think restrictive diets end up failing. Um, my my last point on donuts, and then we'll move on. Uh, I'm a huge donut fan. Colleen and I had actually had donuts at our wedding from the donut plants in New York. And, and I, I, I'll talk about the donut plant and then Sidel's. Those are like, Sidel's is in Miami and New York, and then donut plant is in New York. They ship everywhere. Those donuts that we love so much are actually, and I'm thinking about it, they're, they're lighter, they're not that big. And I'm like, huh, you know what? I may have to do another experiment because I don't think it has, when you're saying Krispy Kreme only has like 10 grams of sugar and 20 grams of carbs, I kind of think that's the good comp. Uh, but at any rate, we will move on from donuts. I just think I had a breakthrough. Um, so, Well, may maybe this is the next levels challenge. We'll do a donut challenge. You should. <laughs> that would be so much fun. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> You can participate. Uh, I, I will. If you do a donut challenge, I'm in. Okay. I'm in. You're our uh, first participant. <laughs> so on, on the subject of donuts in morning, let's talk a little bit about sunlight. What role does sunlight play in our metabolic health? I love that there's so much more emerging research about the power of sunlight because it's something accessible to almost every single person, unless you live in a really extreme latitude, or maybe if you have a job that works in the nights and you're sleeping during the day, but it's almost available to anyone. And I actually think this is something that animals and we would do instinctively. So I was thinking about this and our childhood dog often would start the morning by going outside, sitting in the sun and just staring out into the world. And I think he was actually doing what we should all be doing 
which is getting bright early morning exposure to natural light. Because what happens is that when that sunlight hits your eyes, it's received by receptors in your retina that then send a message to the area of your brain that's the master clock. And this triggers a whole bunch of processes that are hormonal um, and that involve all kinds of signals that tell your body it's time to set the circadian rhythm and it's time to wake up and start doing all the processes it does in harmony. And what we've seen in emerging research is that bright light exposure in the morning actually lowers weight and glucose levels. These were animal studies. Um, it increases serotonin, which we know is linked to mood, but also to lowering appetite and to glucose metabolism. But it also impacts all of these autonomic functions. So the functions that are involuntary that we don't think about, like digestion, our nervous system, and specifically our stress response. It ends up that that master clock area of the brain is a key regulator for cortisol. So it's pretty fascinating to think that you can set your entire body up for a harmonized approach to metabolic health simply by starting the day by getting early morning sun exposure. And it can't be through a window. It's so critical. And so many people are talking about it now. And it has me concerned because I think we're getting rid of daylight savings in a year. <laughs> I'm serious, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about the, our kids, kids out there, they're going to be going to school in the dark in the morning. Like what are the unintended consequences? Like, I just think this is a bad idea. I think it passed the Senate. I don't know if it passed Congress, but I, I think, I think it's like a done deal. But like, to me, that's concerning. Like we're all going to lose time in the morning for time at night. I'm like, why are we doing this? I, I agree. And I, I actually haven't thought through the exact areas of, or time periods of darkness versus light that this will create. But I think there is overwhelming evidence that we should be living in harmony with the sun and with natural light. And so on the subject of kids, well, hopefully that I need to like read up on that. I, I did think it was happening and it, I saw, I read something cause I've been, I was following it for a while. Cause I'm like, why are we doing this? Uh, and I think there was one like trade group that objected. I think it was like the, the national, like an association related to like convenience store or something random, like citing like kids going to school in the dark. Like, that's not good. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Uh, this is a terrible idea. Hopefully, hopefully it's not a done deal. I'll have to check up on that. So, you know, on the subject of kids, you know, some days it's just hard to get, we have little kids. It's just hard to get them to not like, you know, desire mac and cheese or waffles. And it just happens. They're kids. Uh, you know, Ben Bickman, uh, who's a levels advisor was on the show and his rule, I thought was a good rule. He said, you know what, you know, it's going to happen. They're kids. Carbs are going to happen. Cake is going to happen. My rule is if, if whatever you're going to have, you just got to have protein with it. Um, what's your take? Is it that simple for kids to, cause it, it's real when, when kids, you talk about like a blood sugar response and mood swings. Oh, wow. It is real. Like go see kids after a birthday party. It's just, just run, get out of the way. And it's interesting because we can observe that so easily in children, but we don't seem to recognize that in ourselves, even though it is still happening to us too, which I think is pretty fascinating that we've accepted that as normal. I think when it comes to kids, my approach is, or what I recommend to people is just focusing on nutrition. So if you know that those things are going to happen, fine, but also build in lots of good nutrition so that they have a foundation of nutrition and those other things are just kind of on top of it. I think where it gets really difficult is when eating those things replaces their nutrition. 
so that they're either too full to have nutrition or for whatever reason that is replaced in the kind of typical behavior or rhythm of the day. I've seen some really amazing kind of sneaky ways to create kid-friendly dishes that actually get in a lot of nutrition and lower carb loads. So for example, I saw this amazing recipe recently that was a mac and cheese that you can, if you want to be really extreme, you can do it with zoodles or kind of like a cauliflower-based pasta. But even if you're using normal pasta, it used a food processor to create a sauce that included cauliflower, um, pumpkin, I think, and some nuts, um, and just basically a variety of sources of low-carb, fiber, nutrient-rich vegetables that then became a creamy sauce. Might have had tahini. I mean, it's really, it depends how, how flexible your kids are and how much you can disguise it. But then you still add in the cheese, you still add in the butter if that's the flavor that they like. But then when they eat that mac and cheese, one, they're getting a lot more nutrition. And two, you're probably slowing down the impact of the pasta spike by adding all of that fiber. So I think there are some clever ways to do it if you have the time. You know, you mentioned pasta. How does lentil pasta score for you? So I don't personally eat lentil pasta because I'm very sensitive to carbs. So lentil pasta will spike me. One thing that I think is important about all of these lentil-based or kind of bean-based pastas and other things, same with cauliflower-based pasta, you really have to look at the nutrition label because oftentimes the lentil piece or whatever piece, the cauliflower piece, is this tiny piece of it. And then the rest is rice flour or other kind of filler flours that are actually very high glycemic and are going to spike you. So, um, and I know that there's been some people have talked about chickpea pasta versus lentil pasta and the likelihood that one will have more filler than another, but you really just have to look at the labels. Um, and again, for me, the main thing there is nutrition. I think because of the way that those are processed, um, they're certainly going to be higher glycemic than eating lentils, but potentially they might be better than eating regular pasta, especially the ones that are just primarily a few ingredients. Like some of the lentil pastas really are primarily lentils. And I think those are an improvement. Yeah. There's one we buy all the time, tolerance organic, which is literally just lentils and that's it. Yeah. That's so 88% of us in America are metabolically unhealthy. And we all know that glucose plays a significant role here. So becoming educated on what foods cause spikes is extraordinarily valuable information. But I'm going to use the example of my wife, Colleen, and 23andMe. And so, you know, I'm a data junkie and, and I'll try everything. And Colleen will to some degree, but not 23andMe. And, you know, she had said to me, when I said, do you want to do this? You know, no, I don't want to do it because if I find something here that I don't want to find, I know I will stress over it and I will be a mess. And we also know that sometimes the stress over the quote unquote thing can often be worse than the quote unquote thing. <laughs> um, so with all that said, I do think most people can benefit from trying levels or any CGM. But who should potentially proceed with caution or maybe not proceed at all because wearing a CGM could be problematic for them? I think it's such an important question. And of course, like you, I think the potential opportunity and empowerment that comes from tools like Levels is really kind of, from my perspective, amazing in terms of how much technology has advanced in terms of giving us windows into our bodies. 
Um, but one thing that I think happens when you have data is actually the opposite of what some people might think, which is that by taking away the confusion and guesswork of nutrition, the goal is really actually to create freedom rather than restriction. It's to understand what foods work for your unique body. Of course, I think everyone comes to nutrition and the broader journey that we're all on of improving our health from a unique experience. And um, kind of how tools interact with you on that journey is largely up to you. Um, at, at levels, our goal is really to help people create long-term metabolic health. So it's not about the short game for us. It's about how understanding how diet, along with lots of other components, fit into your journey. Um, and so I think as people are considering what tools, whether it's levels or any other tool, how it might help them in their journey, that's ultimately a personal decision in terms of what, what would be empowering to you. Um, we certainly design it to make data, like I said, empowering them from the perspective of freedom and transparency into how your body works. I think the way that I think about it often is that every time we make a choice about diet or about lifestyle, it's really an opportunity to learn. How does this make me feel? How does my body feel? And if I'm using a tool, what does the data say? Because ultimately, we want to be able to be in charge of our own health. Um, and I think that is the great power of data. So I think with all of that said, every person should consider whether or not Levels is the right tool for them at any particular moment in their lives. And there's certainly people who I think it might not be a tool that makes sense. For example, for someone who might have struggled with eating disorders or might be experiencing eating disorder, um, it might not be the right tool for them. And there's other people where I think this might be the tool that completely changes their lives and gets them on track towards their long-term health goals. And so really the goal of Levels is to create an empowering experience um, in any way possible and to use data to do that. And so for, for me, it was definitely empowering. I did it for about 10 days, Colleen did it for about 10 days as well. We, we both drew some valuable insights. And me, for example, I found out, you know, I love refried beans. I found out if I overdo it in terms of quantity, I would spike. If I didn't overdo it, totally fine. And so after the, the 10 or so days, I, I kind of said, you know what, I'm, I'm good here. I've gained some valuable insights. I'm ready to kind of take it off and, and move on. I kind of have a, a feel for how I eat and what works and what doesn't. Um, how, how does one come to that conclusion for themselves where they can have that similar experience where, okay, got to gained all the insights. I'm ready to move on. I think it's so particular to the individual. So I've been wearing a CGM for over a year and I'm still learning. We have people at levels who have been wearing it for years and are still learning. And there's other people who really feel like they've learned a lot in the first month, let's say, and that actually what works for them is to integrate all of that information and feedback that they've gotten over, let's say, the next few months. And then maybe three months later, they feel like they want to check in again and they do it again. So I think it's really personalized. And the kind of metric that I follow for it is, how do you feel living your day-to-day -day life? Do you feel like your energy is consistent? Do you feel like you're sleeping well? Do you feel like you understand how different foods that you're eating impact you? That's really what we're going for is understanding that in your own body. I like that you brought it back to feeling. And I also think you have a much more exotic diet than I probably do. I tend to eat the same things most of the time. 
Um, so, it, you know, in, in terms of feeling, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to, to donuts. I know I've talked a lot about donuts in the show, uh, but, but I, I'm trying to make a larger point here. And so, you know, my opinion is that lifestyle always trumps a, a, a restrictive diet for most people. And if you love donuts or if you love pizza or whatever your thing is, you should not completely exclude that thing from your diet. Uh, you probably shouldn't have it every day. Um, but you know, if you really love something, you probably should have that thing, you know, once a week or twice a month or find out whatever works for you. And I think you should also be aware of the spike as well. Um, and you know, I also don't like the word cheat to describe indulging in that quote unquote thing. Cause I, I think it's a bit of a mind fuck. I like the word treat because to some extent, you know, food is joy. Um, you know, food is nourishment. Uh, and, and yes, it's about health. It's about performance, but you know, I, I do find joy in having a donut on Sundays with my family or enjoying dessert with family and friends over a celebration. And my take is if, if you abstain all the time, you become stressed and develop an unhealthy relationship with food, which I would argue causes more harm than good. Um, and, and I'm just going to segue to one of my all-time favorite studies, the Rosetto study, which I, I mentioned on the show. And so, you know, Rosetto was this small, close-knit Italian community in rural Pennsylvania. So in the 1950s, you got heart disease starting to climb across America. And no one in Rosetto under the age of 47 died of a heart attack. Complete absence of heart disease in men under age 55. Rate of heart attacks in men over 65 was half the national average. Death rates from all causes was 35% lower than anyone else. And they couldn't figure out why this town was somewhat immune from heart disease. It was totally baffling because they were doing a lot of the quote unquote wrong things. You know, they were eating tons of pasta. They were having sausage. They were drinking a ton of wine. They were smoking. So like all the things that, that you and I are like, well, like, these are just terrible. Like never do these things. They were doing them. But multi-generational living was extraordinarily common very close-knit community people would often come over for drinks and meals and alcohol and family and all the time and, and things changed in the 60s when people started to move away social connections became weaker and guess what heart disease arrived and caught up with the national average and so my larger point which i always think is important and, and probably it's because for me, I need, you know, sometimes <laughs> I need to hear this uh, because I am a data junkie. I do believe in the power of nutrition. I believe in optimizing metabolic health, supplementing, exercising, all of the things. But at the end of the day, we can never underestimate the power and the magic of social connections. And it's something, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of. And I constantly have to remind myself. So that, that was my <laughs> my spiel at the end of all of this. I, I completely agree. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier, which was around joy. And I think, at least for me, a lot of social connection is tied to that. And when it comes to choices around diet and lifestyle, I do think that everything should be anchored in the enjoyment of being alive and the fullness of being alive, however someone defines that. Um, and from that perspective, the changes that we make 
in an ideal world, they should be changes that we can keep up for a lifetime. I think this is where concepts like cheating don't really make sense to me because that implies that there's a right and a wrong or that someone is dictating your life. Ultimately, you're in charge. And I think we have to respect everyone's choices on what that means. And that might be different than, of course, at Levels, we have a lot of philosophy around diet and health and, and lifestyle. But ultimately, I think our goal and the goal of everyone should be to help to empower everyone to live in the fullness of whatever they want to experience in their lives. And that's different for everyone. So I'm probably more flexible in this than others might be. Um, but I completely agree with you. And I don't think there's cheating. I think there's just choosing how we want to feel. Agreed. On that note, beyond the donut challenge, which, which I am very excited to partake in, uh, what other interesting studies or experiments are, are upcoming for you guys we can look forward to? Yeah, we, we just kicked off a really exciting, massive IRB-approved study in which we will be exploring the glucose patterns and food and lifestyle patterns in the general population. So we already have the largest existing database of food pairings with um, glucose data in non-diabetics. So I think as of this June, we had over two and a half million food locks and over 100 million glucose data points. So really a lot. And we're just expanding that uh, multifold through this new study. I think this is so exciting because I really believe that real world evidence and kind of studies of people in the real world living their normal lives is the future of this kind of research. There are so many differences in demographics, in lifestyles, in access to resources that we have to start understanding how the body works in the real world, not in a sterilized clinical trial setting. So we're, our goal is to really look at these glucose levels and patterns in normal people and to see the impacts of demographics and lifestyle. And I think the insights hopefully that will come out of this will be will create tons of tools, much of what we've discussed today, but exponentially more about things anyone can do, whether the levels members or not, to improve their metabolic health, and also hopefully to create more transparency in the food industry, where it will be less likely that you go in and you see marketing that this is heart healthy, when in fact, it's massively spiking your blood sugar, that we can show in our data with the data narrative that that is actually not marketing that is accurate. So in all the food pairings, was there one that just stood out to you where you just scratched your head and said, well, I said I've never seen that before, or that is super interesting? There's so many that I think are surprising. For example, grapes are a big spiker for many, many people, almost everybody. I think in general, if you ask someone, are grapes a healthy snack just out on the street? Almost everyone, including me a year ago, would have said, I think grapes are a reasonable snack. They're healthy. It's a fruit. There's nutrition. But actually, because they're typically eaten on their own um, with, and they don't have much fiber of their own, and of course, really not protein or fat, they really spike people out. And this is really just to say that there's so much we still have to learn about how to balance nutrition with blood sugar. Um, and I think over time, hopefully, we'll begin to see the impacts of this on hopefully starting to re reverse some of the trends we're seeing. You know, 75% of Americans, I believe, are overweight or obese. This is, this is a really, really big crisis in the country right now. And I think small things like insights from these kinds of studies can help people make small changes. Agreed. 
Thank you so much, Lauren. And, and you know, again, we're big fans of what you guys are doing at Levels. And thanks so much for, for coming on. Thanks for having me.